0: This is Truth Matters Church. Connect with us at truthmatterschurch.org. In his letter to the church in Philadelphia found in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus makes several promises revolving around the phrase, My God. Why does Jesus call God the Father His God? Today we take a careful look at this phrase and see what Scripture tells us about the relationship of God the Father and God the Son. Leading our study is Pastor Alex Kataroja.
1: Now, are you ready for when Jesus uses the phrase, my God? Let's look at it. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Was that? Oh, I counted wrong. There's four times in this verse alone. Jesus refers to his father as My God. Let me ask us a question. Remember, I'm here to provoke our thinking so that we can know the Godhead more. We can know who the true and living God is and to know our relationship with him more. So I'm going to ask us questions to provoke our thinking, but it's it's not for sport, but it's really to get us to know our faith, to know our God more and our relationship with him. That's where I'm coming from. So I'm going to ask us a question. Here you have Jesus calling the Father, my God, my God, my God, my God. But isn't Jesus God in the flesh? Isn't, Jesus, isn't that what we're, told, what we're taught and we're told? So how can Jesus call God his God and be God in the flesh? And I'm going to, I'm going to go into conjecture here, okay? This is just my observation in two cents. I think the church in general... To a great extent, we've oversimplified the relationship in the Godhead. And when you oversimplify the relationship in the Godhead, you've blurred the relationship in the Trinity. Because what is often taught, and we've heard this, and we're comfortable in saying and accepting it, that Jesus is God. And here's my question, is that an accurate statement? Is Jesus God? And if calling Jesus God, then how can he say, well, he's God, but he's saying my God. So here I'm going to suggest to us that calling Jesus God is an incomplete and imbalanced statement. More technically, Jesus is the Son of God. Where it gets confusing, and this is where it gets confusing, and it's the, it's the, the mystery of the Lord Jesus Christ himself that he is the begotten Son of God in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was with god in the beginning even in john's opening discourse doesn't just come out and say jesus is god he says jesus is the word that was with god from the beginning he's already he he never blurred the relay he never blurred the father and the son he didn't come out and just say jesus is god he says the word was god yeah god who exactly that's why it's a more accurate statement Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the Son of God. What am saying when you say, well, Jesus is God in the flesh? I'm saying that's an imbalanced and incomplete statement. And here's what you're doing. You're blurring the relationship between the Godhead when you say that statement. Because the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. And here's another thing. When Jesus was doing His earthly ministry... The Father was in him, which makes it even that much more confusing. So what I want to do from here is I want to cross-reference a few scriptures that we're familiar with to demonstrate there is a mystery of the Father's involvement, which I think caused an oversimplification of us just saying Jesus is God. And I'm going to tell you where I'm going with this. So let's look at Jesus' words in John 10, verse 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, he goes, don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, he goes, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am the Father. So here's this mystery. I'm bringing this up because there is this mystery of the Father and the Son that was operating in Jesus' ministry that we as a church, oversimplifying, you say, Jesus is God. Wait, that's an oversimplification. The Father was in Christ. And even our Lord said, if you do not believe me, then he goes, believe my works, for my Father is in me performing those works. Um, In John 14, this very familiar passage. Remember, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, "How have I been so long with you, and yet you do not have come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his, this is the Father's works. He goes, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because the works themselves. So Philip our Lord's saying he's going to go, and where he goes, they cannot come. And he's like, well, can you at least show us the Father? And this is the, there's this mystery, and Jesus is saying, saying, like, how can you tell me to show you the Father? How long have I been with you? He goes, what I'm doing, it's the Father's works in me. So you're seeing the Father by what, the, what, what Jesus is doing, because they are in union here's a and we talked about this before who was the one who nailed jesus on the cross in which disarmed all of the rulers powers and authorities in the in the heavenlies i know i know right now and from a human perspective the romans nailed our lord jesus to the cross but you know who was the one who actually nailed him to the cross it was his father nailed the lord jesus and disarmed the father's enemies and who was in Christ as he was doing it? So the Father was giving up his Son and was the one who was the one responsible from a heavenly perspective of nailing his Son. The Father was working in Christ being nailed to the cross is where I'm getting at. And that's part of the Father's works through Jesus Christ. And I want to use one last example. So kind of stay with me here. There is a mystery in the relationship between the Father and the Son but there's still the Father and the Son. the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father. And let's not blur that lines. But in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, he was, he, the Father was in him the whole time. In fact, the Father is the one who is responsible for nailing him to the cross and pouring his wrath on him. It was the Father. So that he can disarm the, the rebellion in heaven, He can disarm the power of sin and the consequences and that he can release us from all that through the obedience of his son and the sacrifice of his son. But the father is working the whole time. What did our Lord say? My father is always working. He didn't take a break when Jesus went to the cross. But did he feel abandoned? There is this mystery. Oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can't explain what happened there. But we know through Colossians 2 that it was the father who nailed Jesus. His son to the cross and poured his wrath and took the wrath that was due on us and took it took it upon himself, so that we can be free from his holy judgment. I want to use one last example from Paul's gospel. I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to the ministry of our Lord and the Father and the Son working in perfect unity and harmony. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, Paul writes there, he goes, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now all things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the the word of reconciliation. And for this passage, I don't know, hopefully it's helping you as much as it's helping me but I always try to keep in view the persons of the Trinity at work. So we're going to do that in this passage. Let's insert the persons of the Trinity, okay? And the text tells us which person of the Trinity it is. So here's the first one. So when Paul says, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all things are from God. Who? From who? From God who? Who reco- and if, you don't, if that wasn't clear, because whoever that person of the Trinity was reconciled us to himself through Christ. So it's not Christ. Because he is the one who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So who is God here and who is himself? Exactly. The Father. So let me put that in there. Hopefully this makes it a little more clear Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all of these things are from God the Father who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God, who? was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So in verse nineteen, namely that which God which person of the Trinity is there? Whoever he was, he was in Christ. So who who is who's God in verse nineteen? Namely that God who Exactly was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Who's himself? The Father. Let me put that in there. Oh, and not, and not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Who gave the ministry of reconciliation to the apostles? Jesus. Okay. The Father is responsible for committing the reconciliation piece, but then it is through Jesus. But they're also working together. But here, here's. But here, you, hopefully, this kind of makes it a little clearer, right? Let me read it one more time. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed. The way, behold, new things have come. Now, all things, all these things are from God the Father, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Not counting their trespasses against them, and God the Father has committed to us the word of reconciliation, yet yeah, through Christ. It was the Father committed the, reconciliation, the the ministry of reconciliation, and he did it through the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. But the Father is the one. So this is an important truth. And this kind of goes back to that imagery in Colossians 2 when he disarmed the powers and authorities. Paul is saying the same thing here in 2 Corinthians. The Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus never acted alone. The Father was in him and he in the Father. Are we hearing the Father was in Christ? The Father was the one who disarmed the rulers and authorities. The Father is the one who who was reconciling the world to himself. So the reason why you and I are in Christ, if you're going, I, I'm reconciled back to our creator. You know why? It's because the Father has reconciled you through the death of his son. It's the Father. It's his, it was his. That's why Jesus says, he who the Father has given me will come to me. Yeah, Whoever comes to him, he will not cast out. You and I are in Christ. Because the Father was reconciling the world to himself. We're in Christ because of the Father. We're in Christ. You have faith. I have faith because our heavenly Father has elected us, has granted us saving faith, and has brought us to his Son, and the Son fulfilled his part because the Father has given him to us and reconciled us back. And that's why Jesus said, you can't come to the Father except through me. And you can't come to me unless the Father dragged you to me so the father was in christ and he and the father the whole time remember why, why did i go on this track because jesus is saying he's my god and it, but the church says oh jesus is god that's a, a really huge oversimplification here's where i'm getting at do you know when you say jesus is god you know what you just did you just robbed glory from god the father because the father was in christ the whole time And that's why Jesus says, if you don't believe me, believe the Father is in me or believe the works because the works testify. When you say Jesus is God, you've just shut out the Father. No, Jesus is the Son of God and his Father was in him the entire time reconciling the world to himself. Yes, Jesus is divine, but he never operated alone. He and his Father are one. They're in complete union, complete harmony, but he's the son, and all he was doing was being faithful to whatever his father has set out for him. And it's clear that the father was manifesting himself through Jesus' works, and that's why Jesus says, if you don't believe me, believe the father in me who's performing his works through me. So all that is to say, please, let's break the habit, and let's not detract from the Father by saying Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is not Yahweh. Yahweh was in Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten one from the Father. So it's more accurate to say that Jesus is the divine Son of God in the flesh, and the Father was in Christ the entire time during his earthly ministry, and Yahweh himself, is coming to at the very end. So, with this truth in mind, when we read something like verse 12, now it's easier for us to accept and understand when Jesus calls God, Yahweh, his God, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And I want to make one last comment on this, but but then Jesus says, um, "Before Abraham was born, I am." See, Jesus is God, and they were like, and they were seeking, they wanted, to, they wanted to pick up stones to throw him because they're saying, "You, a mere man, are claiming to be God or equal with God." With this in mind, who was speaking? Exactly, I am who I am. Who was the one who appeared in the burning bush? The Father. This is before Abraham was born. I am. The Father was in Christ. But we say, oh, see, Jesus is God. Yahweh was in Jesus, and he made that claim. Do you see how I think we as a church, we just say, oh, man, because it's just Jesus is God, and let's move on. But then when you get into other scriptures, then we, we, we have to understand there's a relationship. The Father is the head of Christ, and Christ is the head of the church. The Father is the head. When you say Jesus is God, you just cut off the head, and he's like a body without a head no let's not do that the head is yahweh god the father but the all the titles all the authority all the privileges of the father he bestowed upon his son and i think that's where it gets confusing because then he has equal authority as his father because it was given to him but still the father is always the head and he never stops ceasing to be the head there you go he even says right there my, right there my god my god I think I mentioned it here in the slide. And if I, I'll mention it now in case I didn't mention it on that note, Jeremy. So when Jesus rose from the tomb, and Mary was there, thinking he was the gardener. When he went to the empty tomb, Jesus already rose from the dead, thinking he was the gardener. And when he said Mary, she recognized it was him. And he goes, don't cling to me, for I still have to go to the Father. And But he goes, go and tell the disciples and Peter what you have seen, that I go to visit my God and your God. Our Lord Jesus, the Father, is his God. Like we, but he, See, this is where we, we get confused because we we're, were just taught, well, Jesus is God and he's his equal. I go, you know what? I know the, there's teaching out there that says that they're all co-equal. Um, how about the scripture teaches us that all authority the authority, the Lord Kyrios is God the Father and He has delegated that to the Son. And if that makes them equal, fine. But to say that the the Father is not greater than the Son, where can you support that in Scripture? Jesus calls Him my God. When Have you seen where the Father called Jesus His God? It's not. It's the other way because He is the Father. So Let's not take away from the Father, and at first I was feeling guilty that I was taking away from Christ. But what, it, what I'm finding is no, we're we're putting it back in balance and seeing the work and harmony in the Trinity playing itself out. And because the Father, who's reconciled us to Himself. And when he spoke from heaven at his baptism, saying, this is my son, listen to him, what are we going to do? If the Father brought us to the Son, and the Son shed his blood for us, and our, our Heavenly Father, our God, and Jesus' God, says, listen to Jesus, what are we going to do? We're going to listen to Christ. We're going to listen to him. Because his words are the words of his Father. And he's doing the will of his Father. So that's why... I embrace Christ. That's why I love Jesus. That's why you love Jesus. Because our Father sent Him to die for us, and He commanded us to listen to Him and to remember His death until He comes. And that's what we're going to do. But He's going to bring us back to the Father in the new heaven and the new earth. Pretty cool stuff. He goes, I will make Him a pillar in the temple of my God. Okay, here's some brownie points. Whose temple? Come on. There you go. See, you guys got it. It's God the Father. The temple in heaven that will come down out of heaven into the new heaven and a new earth, that's the Father's temple. And he who sits on the throne. It's his temple. Here's the other brownie points. Which person of the Trinity's name will be written on us? I gave us a clue. It's the same as the 144,000. Both. If you go... To Revelation fourteen, and you look at the ceiling of the, or the one hundred forty four thousand, Jesus' name and authority, or Anoma, and the Father's name and authority was written on them. So, as far as which persons of the names uh, of the Trinity will be written on us, when He says, "I will write on Him," well, when the dust settles, it's going to be both of them, the Father and the Son, and I, and I cross-reference fourteen, Revelation fourteen one there. Okay. Let's keep this going. He goes, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So whose or which person of the Trinity does the new Jerusalem belong to? Whose Jerusalem is this? This, this Kainos Jerusalem. Remember we talked about it last week. The old Jerusalem was kind of a foreshadowing of the true heavenly Jerusalem that will be made up with The redeemed. And that it was, it was kind of this foreshadowing. And this new Kainos Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, this old Jerusalem was kind of giving us a hint of really what is going to be in store for us in the future. But whose or which person of the Trinity does this new Jerusalem belong to? Whose, whose, whose Kainos Jerusalem is this? The city of my God, the city of my God who is God. the Father. The city of my God. And last but not least... Which person in the Trinity gave Jesus a new name in the new city in the New Jerusalem? Who named Je- Who gave Jesus his name? But by naming someone, doesn't that also tell you who's in the position of authority? <laughs> does, the, does Jesus name the Father anything? Right on Jesus, anything? Isn't it? It's the other way. I'm telling you the Father. All this is because of the Father. A very, very important part in that will and plan. So here's the case in point. Jesus, God the Father, is Jesus' God, and God the Father is our God too. That's why you can say, my God, and the city of my God. We have the same heavenly Father. However, the Lord Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, not created like we were, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and there is no one more prestigious and glorious apart from the Father than his son. It's the father and son. It's their show the whole time. Well I did mention it here so that's what I said um, what our Lord told Mary at the tomb see I sent to my father and your father and my God and your God us and our Lord Jesus have the same God and that is God the Father but see I know, I know this, is, this is probably hard for us to try to process but hopefully we got that and finally the last verse of this letter He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I may have said this before or say it again. It's just not another catchy phrase. It's just not another cool way to close out a letter. It's a call to repent and believe what God has written. It is a call to believe and hold fast our confession. And it's a call to believe and persevere at all costs because much is at stake so let's close shall we are we ready to close this letter and with the promises what will the lord jesus make and write on believers and whatever is in store for those first century churches is also in store for the rest of the church of jesus christ here's what we have to look forward to our lord jesus will make us pillars of the church and truth in his father's heavenly temple which is the heavenly city of His Father, which is also known as the New Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth. Our Lord will write on our hearts the name of God the Father and the name of the Father's city and the name of the New Jerusalem in our hearts. And not only will our Lord Jesus write on our hearts the name of His Father and the name of the city of His Father in the New Jerusalem, but the Lord Jesus will also write on us His new name that will be given to Him by His Father. He gets a new name. You know, Abram, Abraham, Sarai, Sarah. Yeshua is going to be something else. But we know that there's also some, there's some naming here and there's some authority implications here. But whatever it is, the Lord Jesus in his first coming, um, whatever, or whatever is in store for him, when this new epoch of time and this new heaven and new earth finally comes, the Father will give him a new name. Our Lord will write right it on us. So both the Father and the Son will be written in our hearts and in our mind. So you know his laws? You know, before they had to be inscribed on stones, ultimately recorded on parchments, and now on the papers and the Bibles and the electronic devices we know today. But there's going to come a time when his laws will be written here. And we're not going to have to tell each other, know the Lord, for we will all know him. It first it began with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But I believe that's also a precursor of what our Lord is going to bring to fulfillment with the rest of the church at the end. So in contrast, so this is what's in store for us. I mean, this is just a few of the promises so far. I mean, we've just covered, there has been, remember we covered the I wills of Jesus? We saw a lot of the promises and this was one of them or some of them. But there's also a contrast. What does this mean for unbelievers? What's in store for them? For those who refuse to repent and believe in Christ, who are not part of the church of Jesus Christ, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, who don't, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, believe the Father, through Christ, will render to every man according to what he has done, to the Jew first, and then also to the Gentiles. And for those who refuse to repent and believe the gospel, they will not have the names of the God, the Father, nor the Lord Jesus Christ, nor the name of the city of the Father, nor the name of the new Jerusalem written on, on their hearts. And as we will see, their place will be with the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. There will be a, their place will not be in the new heaven and the new earth, but outside the gates of the city where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, the lake of fire, where Satan, the fallen angels, and the rest of unbelievers will spend all eternity. We talked a little bit about last week, and you know, this is a thought that is starting to at least materialize and crystallize as we're going through these studies. You know the lake of fire? You know, Once all the judgments is done, what happens to the lake of fire? Does it just vanish? We get this picture that it is outside the gates Of the new heaven and the new earth. I believe, and we're starting to see, that this lake of fire will even be there in the new heaven and the new earth, but it'll be outside. Satan, the angels that joined him in the rebellion, the beast and false prophet, all unbelievers, their place will be in the lake of fire. And we're getting this picture that it is outside the gates. Let's not write off the lake of fire as far as it being just a temporary thing. That's why it's called the eternal fire, lake of fire. I don't believe so far it's even going to go away, even in the eternal state. That's why it's the eternal lake of fire. It's a very grave and dear consequence. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that finally concludes our study of this small but powerful letter to Philadelphia. Next up, and we're finally on the last letter, Laodicea. And like you, I look forward to learning and seeing what's in
0: store for us in that letter. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. Certainly a challenging study, but thankfully by sticking to our rules of engagement taking scripture with scripture and not adding our own preconceptions about the text, we are able to learn more and more about God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And that should always be the goal when studying the Bible. If you've enjoyed this expository study, consider joining us in person or online every Friday night. Details at truthmatterschurch.org contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.